welcome to the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. This is episode number 31, where Jeff and Jeremy answer readers' questions. Hi, everybody. If this is your first time listening to the Texas Wine Lover Podcast, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. This is a special podcast episode. Usually we travel and visit a winery owner, winemaker, or other person. But this time we are answering Texas wine lovers' readers' questions. Readers have the opportunities to submit questions, and Jeremy and I will answer them. So grab a chair, sit back, and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. Uh, today's kind of neat. We're actually doing a first ever Q&A based on our readers. Uh, so Jeff and I are actually going to have some discussion based on questions submitted by you guys, our, our readers and listeners. So it should be kind of fun. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into it. We have several questions that were submitted uh, for this podcast, and we're going to run through and, and read the questions off and, and uh, give you guys an answer. Jeff, uh, go ahead. All right. You ready for the first one? Yeah. All right. So Carl wrote in and said, with so many wine blends available, what is the value to the Texas wine industry in making so many blends? That's a, that's that a good one? question. Uh, so basically, you know, <clears throat> blending worldwide is is obviously very popular because you get complexity. Uh, a diversity of grapes playing together as a family will give you, uh, you know, different textures, different uh, finish options, different acidity levels, different alcohol contents. So really, it's it's a worldwide thing, not just Texas. Um, but I think it, it definitely, in Texas, it's very important because of our weather, as we know, which is goofy. And even like a place like Bordeaux, you know, you might have a warmer or cooler year. And based on those vintages, if it's cooler or warmer, you know, the wines tend to be kind of Merlot heavy or Cab heavy, depending on which grades tended to do better that particular vintage. And, and the same can go for Texas. You know, we might have a year where Viognier is doing great and the Roussanne doesn't do so well, or maybe the High Plains had a great year and the Hill Country didn't. Uh, so we can create blends based upon both AVAs or different grape varieties to produce something that is balanced, uh, even based on maybe a less than stellar vintage. So uh, that pretty much sums it up on my end. You know, it, it provides complexity and diversity to wines, and it allows you to play with uh, terroir and weather expression each vintage and still end up with, with balance. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what I was thinking, primarily the weather thing, because I remember one winery in the Hill Country, they couldn't really get many white grapes. And so they came up with a five-blend white wine. You know, you got to have wine to sell to the customers. And... Uh, it was great, nonetheless, but uh, they couldn't get enough of a certain single varietal, and it worked out fine. So, yeah, blends are definitely needed primarily because of the weather, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it plays a huge factor, and I guess the uh, that's the beauty of having a big state, right? We got, you know, two predominant AVAs that are seven hours apart, and, of course, the weather can be completely different, and that's a good thing. That way we're not stuck with either good or bad. You know, we can actually have options. True, true. All right, so let's see. Question two came from Steve, and Steve said, why do certain red wines seem to keep you wide awake all night? 
That's, that's a pretty good question. Uh, I, I will obviously start this with the fact that we are not doctors, and I can't get that <laughs> detail into it because that's not what we do. Um, but really, it's not wine in general or alcohol in general. Obviously, um, when you first consume it, it, it's a stimulant. And as our bodies process this alcohol, it does become a depressant at some point. So it kind of does two things. You know, it depends on, I guess, the, the, the easy answer is, some people sleep better after drinking alcohol versus some people, depending on your body clock. Uh, you know, your rhythm can be influenced by alcohol, your body's natural sleep cycles and rhythms. So if you drink wine four hours before bed, you might sleep like a baby. And if you drink wine an hour before bed, you might toss and turn for a bit or you might fall asleep and then wake up three hours later. Um, so it really depends on your body's rhythms. Uh, and also alcohol can interfere with uh, REM sleep, or REM sleep, which of course is the sleep that really helps us to recover. Uh, so it's, it's really, it, it really depends on the individual, and it also depends on um, how much you consume and how, how your body processes the alcohol. Well, you pretty much took the words out of my mouth with that one phrase because I was going to say, I don't have a problem. I sleep like a baby. So it helps yeah. me, red or white primarily. Yeah, I've had uh, you know those evenings when you drink a bit too much wine, you kind of go to the bed and you're, you're out like a light. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, some people are, are very sensitive to it, just like some people are sensitive to sugar. You know, some people can drink, you know, coffee right before bed. And some people, if they have a Snickers bar an hour before bed, they're up for three hours. So really it's probably an individual thing more than anything okay all right so next question andy writes in and says is a texas wine still considered texas if they purchase grape juice from new mexico or california oh that's a so that was that was, grapes or juice basically grapes or juice well that's um i mean technically speaking no it's not a texas wine um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's, this is where labeling and, and transparency and honesty come into play. You know, if you're, if you have a wine that's, you know, labeled as Sonoma County ABA or Napa Valley and you're, you're a Texas producer, um, yeah, it's, it's a California wine. And I think that's okay to say, I mean, it, it was grown in California. Sometimes you'll ferment there. Sometimes you'll ferment in Texas if you bring the, the grapes across state lines. So, yeah, I think the straightforward answer would be uh, it, it wouldn't be considered Texas if the grapes weren't grown here, at least predominantly. And uh, that's okay. It's still a, a, it's still a wine released uh, by a Texas producer. So, obviously, they can put their label on it, and, and they can sell it as one of their products. But I, I think it would be far-fetched to call it a Texas wine, you know, as, as far as legal standards are concerned. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the uh, arguments that have been made for, over the years exactly like let's take new mexico for example new mexico and the high plains i mean they're like newsom vineyard and plains texas texas is like right almost to the border of new mexico and they've all always said that it should be considered like one ava pretty much so if i got grapes from new mexico to make texas wine let's say quote unquote at a texas winery why would that not be considered a texas wine so it, it, the argument can go both ways. I see it sometimes. Yeah, I guess that's, that's where it gets tricky. That's where uh, obviously we're in that, in that weird position in Texas right now. And we have been obviously for a few years and we did a write up about labeling and, you know, it's, I think it's a good discussion. You can have, uh, there's a lot of fuel in the fire right now, depending on who you are in the industry and, and when it concerns Texas labeling and 
where the grapes come from. But, you know, I think it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's just good to open your mind and, and think about uh, who produced it and where the grapes come from. And uh, like I said, I think the most important thing is transparency. As long as everybody knows where the grapes are from, you know, it's probably fair. Yeah. Yeah. So Andy also added, uh, did the legs on the glass indicate quality of the wine? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to default this to uh, a little bit because we have a wonderful course. We wrote about uh, how to taste wine like a pro. So I don't want to give away too much because obviously we want people to go and enjoy that and, and learn to taste wine uh, properly. But yeah, I mean, it, the short answer on that one is yes. Not, not, just, not always quality, but it will give an indication of, of structure of a wine, uh, alcohol content, sugar content, if it's a sweet wine or a fortified wine. Uh, legs will be indicative of that for sure. Okay. But yes, good point. We have a course up there to how to taste wine like a pro. So go to the Texas Wine Lover website and sign up. So one last question from Andy. Why is Texas wine so expensive? I guess the best in the world, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, me, I don't know. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll give my, my, my two cents first, I guess. Um, it was actually, uh, I was watching the sequel to Psalm, the movie. And it, it brought up exact uh, answer basically for this was if you think about everybody that's involved in making that bottle of wine that you're consuming and enjoying, I mean, every piece makes up with it. You know, it starts from the grapes, it goes to, you know, the winery, you got your glass bottle, you've got your cork, you've, you've got your label, you've got everything that goes into making a bottle of wine. And when you have some of these small boutique wineries in Texas, it costs money. And unfortunately, in order to get some kind of profit back from that bottle of wine, they've got to charge a little bit more. They can't charge like those grocery store prices. And that's that's my opinion why Texas wine is so expensive. So what do you think about that, Jeremy? No, that's that's a fantastic answer. No, that's that, that sums it up in, greatly. Um, you know, I mean, to get a little more detailed than that, I mean, that's, that, that, that answer definitely nails it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, going, going more into why and what comes into it, obviously, you know, you're paying people to harvest the grapes, to manage the vineyards, and then you're paying your staff to, to crush ferment, uh, rack the wines, put sulfites in the barrels. I mean, the process, if you guys, if somebody were to intern at a winery year round, it never stops. And, you know, it's not just harvest. There's always something to do. Uh, obviously, harvest is the busy time of the year, but there's always something going on. So, yeah, I mean, there's overhead, especially if you're a brand-new winery. I mean, you might have just planted your vineyard. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's a really high amount. If you imagine how much it costs to pay somebody to, to plant or to even put in the, the posts and the trellis and the irrigation, not even the vines themselves, it, it is a really high amount. Uh, so planting a vineyard paying staff and overhead to manage that vineyard and the winery and the tasting room. And, uh, you know, buying, I think most people who make good wine want a quality bottle and quality corks or enclosures and a nice label, you know, that's not, uh, that's not done at home. You know, you're going to pay a labeler just to get the, uh, the initial labels done just to get them approved and done and everything by the actual labor. Of course it's already approved, but once you take them to the person who does your labeling, it's expensive just to get, you know, get everything set to print out your spools. So it's that trickle down effect, you know, a French oak barrel costs about a thousand bucks, one barrel, uh, you know, American oak about 500 bucks for one barrel, you know, it's not cheap. So 
Yeah, that mixed with the fact that, uh, exactly what you said, it's not it's not like we're Behringer in California producing two million cases a year of a particular wine. Uh, most wineries in the Hill Country or in Texas, uh, you know, the boutique wineries. I'd, I'd probably say the average bottling per wine is two to five hundred cases per per bottling, which is not very much. So you can't charge seven bucks a bottle for that. So yeah, it's it's all indicative of how much is put into it, and a newer winery obviously is not uh, not going to have the, the capital behind it to to sell a bottle for ten bucks a bottle typically. Okay. All right, so Lieber writes in and says, Wine quality has substantially increased in Texas over the last 15 years. What do you think are the most substantial contributors to that improvement? Uh, that's a really good question. It's, uh, I'd say probably the number one, two things I think have really increased quality of wine in Texas. Uh, first off, we've discovered what varieties are growing the best here. That's, that's a no-brainer. There's no doubt that is a huge, huge factor. Supplanting the right grape varieties in the right regions to produce quality wine on a yearly basis, not just every once in a while if the year is good. Um, secondly, uh, managing the crops well. So if you're if you're switching over from Cabernet Sauvignon and you pull up all your vines and you plant Tempranillo, you're going to be managing your crop differently. So uh, picking the right crops and learning how to properly manage those other grape varieties, whatever they may be, uh, Tempranillo versus Cabernet or Viognier or Roussanne versus Chardonnay. All those things definitely play a, a huge contributing factor into quality. Well, and the other side, besides just the grapes, though, um, I've seen, you know, an improvement in obviously in the winemakers. People are coming actually to Texas to make wine. And when you have quality winemakers that know what they're doing, they're obviously going to be able to use the best quality grapes from Texas to make the best quality wine. So I think that plays a major factor too. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely a two part, you know, a two part uh, contribution toward that, you know, picking the right grapes and, and learning how to make the wine properly because uh, obviously you can't make good wine with bad fruit, but improperly done, you can take good fruit and make bad wine with it, obviously. So you're, you're right. You definitely, it's important to have a winemaker that knows what they're doing and has some experience. And it, I think it definitely has uh, it's shown true. Uh, when you look at the caliber of winemakers in Texas, you know, Becker, you know, they got a winemaker from California, uh, you know, a couple French winemakers in the Hill Country, uh, you know, uh, Lightning Wines, obviously. Um, you know, lots of cool stuff happening with people that have a ton of experience. And, and even people like Jim Johnson, you know, Alamosa Wine Cellars that unfortunately closed down. You know, Jim and Dave Colkin from Pernell Cellars both went to UC Davis, which is one of the most revered wine schools on the planet. So there's no doubt that we have a, a high quality caliber of people making wine in Texas now. Okay. Um, Mike writes in, I moved several years ago from New York to Texas. In New York, I was able to make my own wine by using a recipe handed down by my great-grandfather and purchasing grapes that were shipped into a local port. I have searched but not found a similar resource in Texas for purchasing grapes. I would greatly appreciate any information you can give me. Why don't you take this one, Jeff? <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. Um, so uh, I would say the first thing is, depending on what kind of grapes you're looking for, um, especially near the end of uh, the season with harvest and stuff, there are 
and of course how the year has been as far as harvest. There are vineyards that have excess grapes that are available for purchase. Um, so you just got to keep your eye out for that. There are also vineyards, for instance, in uh, East Texas that you can go actually go pick your own grapes. And, but most of the time that's muscadine grapes. But again, it's all what kind of grapes you're actually looking for. So that would be my answer as far as that goes. Yeah, I, I unfortunately don't have much to add on that one, but it seemed like you covered it pretty well. Okay. So Rennie writes in, can you tell me whether there are any Texas wineries who are willing to make custom wines for clients? I'm referring to wineries that specialize in making wines exclusively for their clients, where the client brings in their own grapes, have their own labels, etc., and may even be involved in the winemaking process itself. You want me to grab that one, too? All right, I'm going <laughs> to yeah, default that back to you again, buddy. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, I, so I actually did a little research on this one because I wanted to make sure I had some kind of answer. Um, so first of all, we're not sure if, if uh, talking about non-commercial or commercial wine, but uh, checked around, and uh, there's a Houston winery here in Houston. Does that on a limited basis. Uh, I said mostly from uh, muscadine grapes or fruit. They do it in small uh, volumes that are less than 50 gallons because they have limited space. So making more is kind of a difficult situation. Of course, we have Texas Custom Wine Works and Brownfield in the High Plains that does that. Bending Branch Winery in Comfort, Texas does Custom Crush. And when uh, I asked them about that, they call that bin to bottle. So his, his answer was, we're currently only doing custom winemaking and custom bottling work. We make the wine and send it to clients and wineries for their approval. We also source our own fruit instead of them bringing in their own. But they do have one winery where we buy their fruit and make their wine, but the two processes are separate, and we do all the winemaking. So, and then, of course, if you talk, you know, well, not bringing in your own grapes, then there's plenty of uh, wineries in Texas like Watered Wine or Divine Wine, um, Three Dreams Wine in Arlington that uh, they're happy to uh, show you how to make wine and work with you to make your own bottle of wine that using their uh, juice or must. That's that's pretty good long answer, I think, to that question. Yeah, it, it is neat when you can just walk into those places in person and kind of get to see what's happening in the back rooms, you know, when you have the little bins going and, uh, you know, little tanks. It's kind of cool to be able to walk in and say, hey, I made that wine, you know. Exactly, yeah. Okay, last question. John says, It seems the consensus among a lot of the U.S. 290 winemakers is that Tempranillo is the red varietal best suited to Texas. What steps are wineries taking to popularize market this varietal to a general public predisposed to drinking the more traditional French varietals, such as Merlot, Cab, and Pinot? i give you this one, bud. They make Tempranillo in Texas. <laughs> they make wine in Texas. Temper. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's so kind of two things there. He asked almost. Uh, you know, the consensus being Tempranillo being a, a big red for sure. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that that Tempranillo is is found a home in Texas. It's a it's a grape that naturally does, I should say, tolerates very well the heat and. Um, Obviously, any grape prefers a little bit more cool down than we get in the hill country some of the time. But when you compare it to other grapes who uh, really prefer cooler weather, a grape like Pinot Noir, Tempranillo does very well. 
so yeah, there's no doubt that it's become a thing. You know, Tempranillo is very popular in Texas overall, both in the hill country and uh, in the high plains, and you know, really, really all over. Um, I guess the second part of that: what steps are wineries taking to popularize and market this great variety? Um, I'm not sure that people necessarily are. Um, I've definitely noticed some wineries are definitely focused on it. A great example is Pertinella Cellars. You know, Dave Culkin and Julie and Frederick have really focused and emphasized their whole program around Tempranillo and Viognier, which is great. That way they put all their effort and concentration into these two grapes. And of course they do other things, but you know, that's kind of their baby. Uh, so to me, they're one of the shining examples of somebody who really is focused completely on that grape uh, as a kind of a backbone of their, their program. But uh, I don't see a lot of people doing that. You know, it, it's, you know, we're still early in the game. You know, I hesitated years ago to call it the red grape of Texas, and I hesitated to call the Viognier the white grape of Texas. But of course, now I call it the Queen. You know, uh, they're they're definitely becoming entities to be recognized, and there's no doubt that I think the future of Texas wine really is going to revolve around Tempranillo and Viognier, amongst many others, though. So. I don't think people are necessarily marketing Tempranillo as the Texas grape overall. Uh, I think some people really are hitting it hard and heavy and some people are not. So it really depends on the winemaker and, and what their focus is. But I think Tempranillo definitely is one of the, one of the key grape varieties for the future Texas wine. Yeah. I mean, it, it, as far as educating people, it's obviously the ones that come to the winery and they, they have Tempranillo. Uh, they will obviously educate them as far as, Here's this grape, you know, popular in Spain, blah, blah, blah. So you, you got to try it. And, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are more popular ones like he's mentioned. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many to list. It, you know, the list keeps getting bigger every year, I think, of grapes that do exceptionally well here, which is exciting. But I'll tell you a, a funny story. I had a lady, of course, you know, I think a lot of people know I work at Coolman Cellars. Uh, and we had a lady come in, I don't know, a couple months ago, and it was probably Probably one of the proudest moments I've had in Texas wine because I look back on the days years ago when, you know, people are like, what's Tempranilla? I mean, people didn't know what it was. And yeah, it's still kind of that way for some people. But overall, I think people that drink Texas wine know the grape. But this lady walked in and she looked at our menu and she's like, where's your Tempranillo? I mean, she she came in asking for that grape by name, which is so cool. Mm. And it was kind of a, a, a pinnacle moment for me. That just made me excited because, you know, you go to places like Napa Valley and you expect Cabernet Sauvignon, you expect Chardonnay because that's what they do well amongst others. But I think it's catching on now and it's catching on quick that, you know, people kind of come to expect certain things and they're looking for it by name, which is, is cool. It's really neat to see that now. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions we had. So, uh, I think we got a good uh, length here, and I'd like to thank everybody for sending in your questions. Obviously, if you want to know more about Texas wine, follow the website, texaswinelover.com. Uh, like us on Facebook. Follow us there. We have a Facebook group, too. And uh, we're sure to answer questions whenever we get them there. Yeah, same thing. Thanks for listening, as always, guys. Uh, keep tuning in. we got some more fun stuff coming up uh, within the next month or two regarding podcasts uh, we'll get some more stuff released and uh i guess i'll throw out there i don't know about you jeff but this is kind of fun you know so uh if our listeners if you guys like this kind of stuff if you if you like the format of you submit questions and we kind of discuss it and you can listen to it 
let us know. You know, hit us up, send us a message, send us an email. Let us know if you want more of it, and uh, we'll be glad to do another one in the future. And uh, go to iTunes and like Texas Wine Lover Podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So next time, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. If you would like to read the show notes and see the photos included in a larger size, check out the blog post at texaswinelover.com. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash TXWineLover. Plus, we are also on Twitter. Please subscribe to the podcast either on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Join us next time for another episode of the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. Podcast.